Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. And I'm Leland Steele. Well, Leland, another February uh, month of love, another month we have no guest. So, yep. I just wanted to throw that out there. Mind you, Emma, guest on the show, your girlfriend, is out from Europe. Yes, she is in the other room. That's right. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on our text messaging, which you never got back to me to, did she bring Stroop Waffle, or am I not oh. allowed to know you? <laughs> she did not, because she did not have the oh. room in her suitcase this time. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. She has a few things that she needs to take home, so she needs to have the room. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Because, yeah, last time I got type 4 diabetes, didn't even exist yet, but Stroop Waffle made it. And I also mm-hmm, put on mm-hmm. 15 pounds, so because I ate all her Stroop waffles, she got me in like six hours. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was like you three know, hours the <laughs> night I got them, and three hours in breakfast the next day. <laughs> Honestly, I uh, I'm not that big on the Stroop waffle. No, oh. well, if she yeah, gives know. them to you, you can just give them to Moby. Well, that's true. I'll, I'll pass them down a the line. Yeah, <laughs> I've been Moby. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, know it's it's good and and uh, Emma actually inspired one of the two segments tonight. Um, I I don't want to give too much into it, but it, we're going to listener. We're going to review an honest to goodness board game. Hot diggity damn! Wow, it has been a while, and um, this is a board game I was taught last weekend. Uh, I, I know I'm planting seeds here. Very popular, but uh, Emma really likes it. I. I don't know. Is it only four player, Leland? Maybe I'm getting too into it too early, but I just hope we can play it next weekend. Uh, place five. Yeah, but episode 75, crawling our way uh, towards, I guess it'll... Episode 75. When I say wow. that, I'm like, what? <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of material for us to listen to in the old folks' home if we get there. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jesus, the amount of podcasting. That I've done, I have, I, I could start it now and have enough to go until I die. Yes. Yes. It, it you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to listen to these. Of course, some of them are cringeworthy, but a lot we're proud of. <laughs> um, we'll have to do something big for episode 100 when we get there. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I have some yeah, ideas. Yeah. I have some ideas, but um, it we'll, we'll get there in a while. A couple years, I guess. But I'm motivated, baby. I'm motivated, Leland. I, I got, I got I like a fever. It. I like it. I got it. a fever. And the prescription is more podcasting. The, the prescription <laughs> is more podcasting. Uh, we were joking, <laughs> listener. There is going to be a condescending controversy this episode, also known as a gentlemanly polite discourse. <laughs> as I'm sure you're aware. Um, where Leland and I, in the most gentlemanly way, try to award each other points. And we just try to insist enough to deny them. <laughs> you know what? Talk it's almost as if we're playing a cooperative game when we condescending. Oh, no. Checkmate. <laughs> Checkmate already. Well, I shall, I shall compete with that assertion, <laughs> my good sir. Well, listeners, stay tuned till after the stay banter tuned. to understand those jokes. <laughs> okay. I love how, like, we're basically seeding this episode telling nothing for, like, the first five minutes. It must be the most frustrating thing to listen to ever. I know. They're just like, dudes, just spit it out. 
Just hurry the fuck up. <laughs> Get through the banter already. Well, okay, the banter may not be hurried. I am not hoping for a 20-minute banter, but I am neither opposed to it. Because, <laughs> because, listener, I am motivated. Because I have one and only banter. Now, Leland knows what it is, and, he, and his is similar. He's up for discussing. Minor spoilers in discussing the book of Boba Fett, which is a show on Disney Plus, has seven episodes, six have dropped, there's one more on Wednesday, and then presumably it's a limited run series as far as we know, and it's done. I mean, I will try to... I I don't actually know if this show can be spoiled. That's one thing I was thinking about. Because there's... Is there enough plot to be spoiled there's character <laughs> introductions to be spoiled but is, well, can, can i possibly sure. spoil the plot i legitimately I mean, don't think i can they, they, they disney has interrupted your regular scheduled programming a book of boba fett to to show you mandalorian season two and a half two point oh, yeah. five like it makes no fucking sense i don't understand this show i don't i've never that. seen a show like this in my life you know it's like in the, I think it was the 1980s, someone hacked some TV station in Nebraska with Max Headroom saying a mm-hmm. bunch of yeah, yeah, shit. Yeah. It's like Disney did that with their own show for two episodes. <laughs> when they did it the first time, everyone's like, oh, wow, this is weird. But then the very next episode just continues on the Max Headroom hacking. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. I honestly was not expecting that. Okay, so listener, as I said, limited run series as far as we know, only seven episodes. The first five were about Boba Fett. Mind you, almost nothing that I can remember with first four. Yeah, four. Yeah, just four were about Boba Fett. But, I mean, I have so much to say because, I mean, let's just start with that. Let's just chunk off those first four episodes. I've watched every episode with one of my best friends, Joe. We do a little Disney watch party. And at the end of each time, we try to talk about the episode, but we don't know where it's going. We don't know what happens. Why is the galaxy's most dangerous bounty hunter on Tatooine, this backwater shit desert planet we've talked about in our Star Wars specials before, that seems to attract the world's attention or the galaxy's attention, and he's satisfied with being a criminal overlord for like a few neighborhoods of one city like am i taking crazy pills here because i don't get (laughs) this og badass bounty hunter settling for this and not only that he's become nice and kind he doesn't want to use violence but the show doesn't seem to go anywhere it doesn't point to anything he just flashbacks brokers a few deals with the Power Ranger kids and better Chewbacca. And that's, <laughs> that's all we see other than Max Rebo play more piano. <laughs> that's literally the show for the first four episodes. <laughs> so Am I wrong, Leland? Am I no, wrong? No, 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 no. You are 100% not wrong. So, so, okay. I don't really know how to walk somebody that hasn't watched the show yet through the process that like my thinking process as I'm watching it week to week, because I feel like the week to week is hurting this show 
because uh, yes. there are some there's there's I, th- I think it was like episode three where it felt like literally nothing happened like mm-hmm. literally like it ended and i'm like wait a second i've been watching this for 10 oh it's been half an hour like I th- it felt like five minutes went by and i and, and i don't understand yeah. what what is going on yeah there's there's no clear direction i, I saw um even after the first episode i saw a number of people bitching about it on twitter saying like this is so the the dissonance between the flash but what's going on in the flashbacks and the present and how they're just so disconnected makes zero sense for storytelling. Like not a lick of sense. So the only thing I can think of is all the flashbacks uh basically we the flashback starts from when he pulls himself out of the the Sarlacc pit, right? Right. And we see how he survives it because obviously that needs to be explained because it wasn't explained in Mando season 2. Uh, when he showed up with uh, with uh, what's what's her what's her face Ren or Ren or whatever her name is yeah uh, oh Fennec Shan oh Fennec I don't know why I want I keep saying Ren but yeah she's the harder so version the, of so, Kylo Ren maybe I don't know so oh okay that's exactly <laughs> so the only thing I can think of the only thing I can think of is that like all the flashbacks are are to show us why he now has an affinity for this place and wants to. Like what? What drew what drew him back to to uh, Jabba's palace after he got his armor, right? Right. Like so, the whole. I I feel like there's also a lot more. Well, I don't even know if there is more flashbacks we're gonna see because what would be the point? Because basically, we hit at the at the point we are on the show. To the flashbacks is it's like almost like the flashback leads right into Mando season two where he meet where they meet in Mandalorian right. season two, right? So what uh, what more is there to show us? And the stuff that's actually going on in the city in the desert city doesn't is not interesting because I don't know what's happening. I don't know who any of these people are. Like we get very brief inter, uh, introductions to these like mini crime bosses, and like I just know spice is flowing. There's some fish people doing something. I I don't know. <laughs> I just don't get it. More than not knowing who these people are, we just don't care. And I love Star Wars, but I just never has a... a, Well, I mean, I guess there's only two Star Wars shows so far, live action, that I've seen. But, I mean, even in the Clone Wars, you care about the characters, or in Rebels. I don't care about the two Gamoranian pig guards that Boba (laughs) brought on. I don't care about the kid Power Rangers. I don't care... I mean, Black Chrysanthemum is from the comics, and he's, you know, cool, and they try to make him up to to, to be cool, but I feel like if there's anything this, this series has done, it's they give little, like, Easter eggs and bring back some characters, and they're basically like, you know, like... Uh, Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park. It's like, Chrysanthemum here! We got Chrysanthemum! <laughs> See? Nobody cares! <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what it's like! Right. Um... I know before, so so before this drop, the show dropped. Um, I think you and I were talking, and and the, there was theories going around, like basically this is ripped from uh, you know lore that no longer is technically canon after everything got Disneyfied about you know Boba uniting the crime, uh, Boba, Boba. Bubba, Bubba Fett, Bubba Fett shrimp, <laughs> uniting the crime bosses to fight Thrawn, to take on Thrawn, right? And, and that's what know, I thought, a, yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, maybe it's moving to something like that, but there's no indication that it is so far. No, uh, at least in my, in my opinion. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't. So, yeah, I just, I don't understand what's happening or where, what the point of it all is. 
Do you know the significance of the title? Like, why is it called The Book of Boba Fett? I do not. Okay, neither do I. I have no clue. I watch a lot of YouTube, like, uh, after shows, people, you know, saying, trying to identify what's going on. And they say, well, like a book, you know, you have chapters that go to other characters and stuff like that. But yeah, in a seven-chapter book, you wouldn't have two chapters that have nothing to do with the main storyline or character. That's too much. And, and that's yeah, what we've got. Yeah. I don't know where this is going. Yeah, and I know you said late spoilers at the top, but like obviously the Mandalorian shows up. Uh, you probably, even if you haven't watched his show, you probably know that he shows up. Just because... I'm sure every, it was surprised everybody. And now he's had two full episodes dedicated to him. Maybe more like one and a half. Because, uh, you know, Grogu is pretty prominent in the other half of uh, episode six. But, I mean, Boba Fett doesn't give a shit about any of the Mandalorian crap. Like, he's he's not a Mandalorian. No. He's not even a Mandalorian. He's his dad. It's his dad's. This is his family's armor. It has nothing to do with Mandalore. Not like with the man with the actual Mandalorian, with, with Din. No, uh, right? Like I so I don't I don't understand. Why are we seeing the Mandalorian at all right now? Why are we why aren't we seeing his shit in season 3? So literally the only reason that we're seeing him now is because we can't see this stuff in season 3, Mandalorian season 3 because it would fuck with the the coin the way events are happening, right? Things are coinciding and happening simultaneously and if they showed it to us in two distinct series it wouldn't make any sense to us i guess like is that what they're thinking i guess but i i honestly think it would be cool cooler if say mando flies in with grogu and you know he's muscle as fennec said we need to call some muscle and you don't know how he got grogu back you're just like wow wasn't grogu with luke wow something's happened and then you see that you see those two episodes that are inserted in this show to start season three of the mandalorian you know i think right. that's a cool way of doing it instead they go full on to mando's story you don't even see boba fett or any of his crew in episode five and then in episode six you get like 10 seconds of boba fett looking at a projector screen and that's literally all you get like they have taken the show from the showrunner and the problem is like if, if this was a 10 episode limited series I'd be a little less worried. I'd be like, okay, you know, they've got some space to figure stuff out. But I can't help but thinking there will be an apocalyptically low amount of character development to end season seven. Or sorry, not season seven, episode seven. Because they're going to want to end it with a bang. It's going to be a big fight with someone, maybe the Pikes. But like, if that happens at the end of it, I'm going to be like, well, where was Boba Fett's character development? Then Mando had more character development. Spoilers, fucking Luke would have more character development. <laughs> At least we see him build his Jedi place and training his first student. And Disney finally got pretty decent CGI and digital voicing and stuff to make a reasonably good young Luke. And I... <laughs> I don't know what to say anymore. Like, this is the weirdest show. Like, nothing would make me in a million years expect where the show has gone. Well, and you know, it's funny. The So the insertion of Mando into Book of Boba Fett 
literally juxtapose right against the insertion of Boba Fett into Mandalorian season two and how, right. How, 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 how wrong they steered the course in book of Boba Fett comparatively. Like, right. Because even though we had a lot of Boba in season two of Mandalorian, we also had the fucking Mandalorian. He was there like every yeah. step of the way with Boba Fett everywhere. Boba Fett was. So was the Mando. Cause it's his fucking series. Exactly. This is not Boba Fett series. This is not a series about Boba Fett. No, it's, it's about not. Nothing. It's about Tatooine. It's about fucking nothing. <laughs> it is about nothing. It's, and you know what's crazy is it's it's like, it's like you have a bunch of great ingredients. You have like truffles, and you have really good olive oil, and you have all this stuff, and you just like mix it together, and it comes shit. Because you know it was great. I I know you didn't like him. Or, or his design. I think he didn't like him. But it was great seeing Cad Bane. It was great seeing the Marshall again for me. All the stuff, like, ingredients that are nice to see. It was nice to see Luke. Honestly, it was cool to yeah, see Luke. But, like, when cool. you throw it all together in this pot, it makes nothing. It's like in art class, how when you mix all colors, it just comes out as shit comes brown. Out brown. Yeah, it comes out as brown. Uh, I, I, okay, it is dope as hell that when Cad Bane showed up, now we're full spoiling, but when Cad Bane showed yeah, up yeah, at the whatever. end, of, I, at the end really of episode six, like that was awesome. And as soon as I saw, you see him in the distance, as soon as I hat, saw the hat, like, oh my God, it's Cad I was Bane. Like, I knew it's crazy. It. And then when he lifts his face up, his face was way too fat. It was just, I mean, I understand the, the art style of the animated Clone Wars is just impossible to replicate in the physical world, right? With a human form. Cause they're just so, everybody is just so elongated and, and I, and, you know, they're, they're, it's like their limbs are extra long. Everyone's just like a, you know, toothpicks thin and Cad Bane is one of them. He's like this lanky motherfucker, like creepy motherfucker, but his face was just way too fat. And immediately the day after I saw a tweet saying, Hey, I fixed Cad Bane's face. And literally they just like slimmed in his cheeks right under the eyes and it looks exactly like he did in the animated series like it was it was mm. a world of difference so i don't know i, I like i was ex- it's like it's it's cool i like Cad Bane. he's a very cool character um he's like this unapologetic bounty hunter right he's just he's just a, such a fucking bastard yeah. and he's great and he just he knows how to fuck with the jedi and he's great in clone wars because he just knows how to fight the jedi and like every time he gets away from the jedi and that's a you know, not many people can can say that they are able to do that. No. So it is cool that he's. It's cool that he's here. He's here, but he looks like he looks like shit. <laughs> like he looks terrible, and especially after how phenomenal Luke looks. Yeah, yeah, Luke looked great. I mean, it's a little weird when he talks. Sometimes it, it goes back to the uncanny valley, but when he doesn't talk, like it's bang on, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always the problem is as soon as your your digital portrayal has to start to emote, right? Like all those tiny little muscles in the human face, just nearly impossible to, to replicate without, like you say, dipping into that uncanny valley. Um, so that's what I, and that's immediately what I thought, like, because that very, you see him, you're like, holy shit, that looks great. And then you clearly see where all the money for this seven episode series went into right <laughs> yeah. is fucking rendering a young ass uh um luke skywalker what should we do with all this budget for boba fett yeah. let's make What's... luke skywalker yeah. okay 
<laughs> right? And then you and then I'm like, okay, well, this looks good, but like he's not he's not doing anything. He's not smiling, he's not he's not even like showing any emotion at all. So of course it looks good. Cause really it didn't seem like it was put through the ringer, right? This is like it's almost like it's like a prototype. You don't you don't uh endurance test your prototype. That's not what the prototype is supposed to do. No. No. You know what? I just um I I this has been cathartic for me. I don't actually know what more to say because it's so incomplete, but you can damn well know next month I'm gonna say something. Because I just, I'm weirded out, I'm frustrated, there's only one episode left, and I can't see this going in a way that does not profoundly disappoint me. And that's my concern. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, like, I have no real connection with Boba Like, I don't care about Boba Fett. I mean, yeah, he's cool. And he was really cool in Mandalorian Season 2. Like, all the scenes, like, he was, it was, he was utilized incredibly effectively, right? But, like, I just, I don't have any attachments to the character, so I'm not entirely disenfranchised with it. Because, like, I'm still, I'm still enjoying the show. Uh, but, like, it's just, like, it's one of those, you know, middle-of-the-road kind of stuff for me right now. Whereas Mandalorian is always so much higher. It's so, it's so like, at the, to- at the top, top tier, I think. Mandalorian, especially Season 2, like, they really honed in the dials on that series, I think, for Season 2, right? I mean, we talked about it. We reviewed it. Um, so... So I'm not entirely like downtrodden uh, over it. <laughs> downtrodden. But, yeah, it's got problems. It's got some fucking problems. Yeah, I uh, I don't even know what to say. Like, like I said, like I, I mean, you make whatever final comments you have. I, I'm com- in complete in agreement. I'm just mystified with what I'm actually watching, and um, <laughs> I, I don't know where this goes. Uh, yeah, I, I could. I mean, I we I could start bitching about how stupid the Jedi are. Um, again, wouldn't be like the I first time. Do. Honestly, the Jedi Order is the the single stupidest thing in that entire galaxy. They're so, they're so. I don't even know how to. I don't know how to even describe them. I don't know what the word is for it. They just they don't bend. They don't change. They continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. And we know the path that Luke. We see Luke going on already is the mistake like we've seen it in ruins because we've seen the latest trilogy of films so we know where it ends up and we know it doesn't turn out good and yet he continues to do the same thing that we saw happen in the prequels they're all they're, they're fucking hubris it just it blows my mind and the fact that ugh, we're getting into oh my god i don't even want to get into this because <laughs> the fact we're going full jedi that the fact that Gro- that luke gave Grogu that choice at the end of that episode was the fucking stupidest thing ever. It makes zero sense. Tactically, emotionally, it, it doesn't make any fucking sense. It's just so stupid. I, I, nah. Well, it's like, ah, okay, ah. I know, because, okay, I don't want to get into it too much, but it's like, why? Why do the Jedi have the no attachment rule? It's like, okay, you can't be attached. Why? Give me a reason in the galaxy how this makes Jedi worse, because... I would assume it would make Jedi protect people more, like more motivated to fight for their loved ones. But no, they're not supposed to have attachments. Okay, but but why? And honestly, like if this was real life and you're giving someone like Grogu a choice between being a Jedi or seeing Mando, like you're basically fucking him up psychologically. So is, right. is, is, that, is that mean you're a good teacher? And... 
I mean, coming from Luke, that's pretty rich. If anybody had emotional attachments, it was Luke. Look what he did with his dad. Exactly. You know I don't mean? understand. Yeah. So so now, what, four years later, he's a hard ass when it comes to Jedi training? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it stems from their their deep-seated fear of the dark side, right? Like, that's, that's all it stems from. That's why Ahsoka is dope as fuck, because she doesn't fall into any of that crap. She doesn't fall she prey to that She just doesn't shit. care. Because she saw what happened to Anakin, and... You know, she was super close with Anakin. And I do like that we get, I like seeing the interaction with Ahsoka and Luke. Like, I like that we get to see them be almost like this buddy buddy. And there's like this kind of stra- like strange tentative relationship between the two of them, you know, with their with their history. So I, I like that. That was cool. But I just like Ahsoka. So I'll, I'll pretty much like anything that Ahsoka's in. <laughs> yeah, she's a great character. She's really well acted. And she kind of has a nobility in this uh, episode, episode six that totally. she's in. You know, I'm a friend of the family, and you, you really see her almost as, like, Luke's superior that's kind of watching over things. Now, she, she's a great character. I mean, she gets her own show, so that's that's awesome. I can't complain, but anyways, yeah, well from my end, rant over, baby. That's that's what I wanted to rant about. Unless, if you got anything, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to talk about Pam and Tommy, the the series about uh, Tommy Lee and oh, and go Pam ahead, and sex by all on means. Disney on Disney Plus of all platforms. <laughs> no, <laughs> like that's so that seems so strange to me. But like, I'm really digging it so far. But me too. It, the first three episodes scream as a as a hit piece on Tommy and just propping Pamela up on a pedestal. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, they're really well acted. Like, kudos to Sebastian Stan for oh, getting his he's, dick he's molded. Awesome. He, he's amazing. <laughs> I, I hate him, especially from that first episode. He's such a dick. Like, oh, and, and I hate what he does to the Carpenters. Like, not just Seth Rogen, but like the contractor himself. Like, he screws over everybody. And, you know, the thing about Pam, they make Pam, like, does she do any wrong other than pick a quote-unquote bad guy? Like, Everything she does is like golden girl perfect in the show. Yeah. Yep. So far. Man, she really looks like Pam, that actress. My goodness, she's smoking, but even her face looks like Pam. But you know what was interesting is um, as we got into, because I've seen the first three episodes, listener. So Leland and I have both seen it. There's some little scenes I like. I like, you know, they have this whirlwind romance. They have like tons of sex. They get married. And then they're on the plane back and they realize they don't know each other. It's like, well, what movies do you like? Oh, I like romantic comedies. Oh, I don't know them. I like horror movies. Oh, I don't like horror. You kind of see how their relationship will eventually break up because long term, like you never see those two in an old folks home, like with with their hormones dead. It's like long term, once the, like the intense physical attraction will break apart. They don't have anything else. Um, so I thought it was cool that it showed that. Well, I mean, yeah, to that point, there was even there's even like a scene where like Pamela learns Tommy's actual last name. Like his, like his, yeah. his, his middle name is Lee. And she's like, oh, I didn't know that. Wait a second. We're, we're <laughs> already married at their house. Married, husband and wife, having dinner. And I'm now learning your actual last name. You're <laughs> like, right. What? You're right. That's a great scene as well. And and one of the things, like, I've seen interviews with Pamela Anderson before, you know, show research. Um, and so, you know, she is that <laughs> she, she is that ditzy 
that they show. She is that kind of over-the-top Disney princess kind of ditzy. And I could see why she's had like four or five marriages. Like, I'm not trying to insult her, but like she's pretty shallow, not in a way that we usually think of shallow as being like selfish or materialistic, but there's just not a lot to her. She doesn't really have any hobbies or do much. And I could see like how she has a shelf life in relationships um, beyond a few years of, you know, passion and stuff like that. And, and my mind, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, but as I see her character, my mind goes like, yeah, there'd be perks being in a relationship with this woman, a couple big perks, but it's like, (laughs) you know, she's, there's a shelf life there. If you had to live with her 365 days a year, you know, someone like myself that wants to have, you know, as lame as this is good conversations and things in common, you know, I could never see myself in, in Tommy's position long-term. And I think I, my prediction Leland is, I know this is a limited run show, I actually think the show, unfortunately, tragically, will will end with Tommy and Pam breaking up. I think that's where it's headed. I mean, she's already pregnant by episode three. So, like, things are moving. Yeah, and um, again, I, I, don't, I don't know how close to, you know, actual events they're sticking things or what liberties they may or may not take with the rest of the, the series. But honestly, though, all those things you say about Pam, like, the same is true for Tommy. It's just mm-hmm. Tommy is painted as Tommy is the antagonist here, right? Even even Rogan's character, you know, the one actually se- se- uh, selling the tape of them, which yeah. is a horrendous thing to do and and terrible thing to profit from this invasion of the privacy of these two people. But the, obviously, the 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 intent is to make you really root to see Tommy taken down. But on the other right. flip side, say, well, fuck Pamela Burns with him. Like, that's clearly the intention, right? Right. And I think they're currently doing a pretty good job at, at painting it. But, like, Tommy only has one big upside, too, to be in a relationship with this fucking dick. So, uh, you can, <laughs> that's really thing it. about Tommy Lee. Yeah. I mean, the most character development they're actually able to give him is that one scene where he's watching TV and they talk about how uh, 80s, you know, bands have been replaced by grunge, which... I guess it's true and you kind of see like how you know he has his money and a little bit of fame but like he's basically washed up by this point especially compared to pam who's at her height when they true get together yeah. here mind you again like there's a few good nugget character building scenes there that the fact that pam tries so hard with that monologue and then the producers on baywatch just shut her down because you know they just want to yeah. film her ass more um yeah i feel feel bad for that because she's trying to be a good a real actress you see that when she interviews with the marketing girl for uh barbed wire um too Mm -hmm. which spoilers that movie bombed in real life so i'm sure that's going to be a crisis for pam in the next episode (laughs) yeah yeah no i'm really liking it um i think it is a good show i think they're doing a good job i mean Seth Rogen's great in it too. Like every all everybody's giving a, a great performance. Nick Offerman, because of the porn king. He's pretty good. I mean, it's a subdued role. He's not he's not Ron Swanson, but uh, uh, it's it's a good role. And you know, it's it's interesting 
two, I, I don't know where they, I, they should go somewhere with it. There's the fact that Seth Rogen's character was married to a porn star and now he's distributing a porn video. Like, I feel like there could be a connection, a character building connection there that maybe they will realize, but could also be a missed opportunity. And, and kudos to Rogan. I said this to you in over text message. Like, the guy lost a lot of weight. I mean, he's not a bodybuilder. He clearly lost weight for the role, though. Looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I, I, it looks like Sebastian Stan uh, lost some mass. Oh, fuck. Lost some mass. I mean, that guy is, he's like ripped. Like, not jacked, but like, he is cut. Because you see every square inch of him, front and back, a lot. <laughs> so, you have a very good yeah, chance is, of seeing... He's being... very loosely clothed, clothed the, whole, the whole series. <laughs> well, I guess this is the final evolution of being like a 10-year contract Disney actor. 2022 you get your dick molded and you're naked for a whole show i guess that's where where things went but that's where i mean money goes uh, honestly we love sebastian stan you loved winter soldier civil war he's a great actor so it's good to see him giving a role that he was really really committed to um i read somewhere this is just like a little bit of trivia but like apparently like he spent I forget if it was like dozens or hundreds of hours learning to drum like Tommy Lee. And because Tommy Lee likes to form an X and drum from behind his head, like apparently he was smacking his head over and over, like creating blood and swelling and all sorts of things, learning to drum like Tommy Lee. So I I love that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, listener, we, we recommend uh, three episodes in. We, we recommend uh, Pam and Tommy. When's the next episode drop? It must be like... Uh, I think they drop Wednesdays. They drop Wednesdays. I'm trying to keep track of this. Like, when does Peacemaker drop? When does Book of Mandalorian drop? When does yeah, Pam and Tommy Book of drop? Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the weekly bullshit. I really hate the weekly bullshit. Like, I just want to binge. You know, I, I honestly want to say, like, you know what? Like, Disney Plus, take my money for the next three months in exchange for dropping all this stuff at once. Don't <laughs> do not do this one half an hour episode per week, and that's the only time I'm on your streaming service. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> Anyways, this is shaping up to be a long show, baby. But uh, good, good for yeah, you to bring yeah, that Yeah, let's out. move on. Let's move on. Okay, so listener, we it's been a long time since we've done a condescending controversy. This one is titled Cooperative versus Confrontational Board Games, inspired by our crazy about cardboard section today. So I just thought it would be interesting for Leland and I to have a debate slash hug it out about <laughs> what, you know the difference between cooperative and competitive board games, which is better, maybe expand each other's minds. Because uh, we play both, we enjoy both. Um, but uh, the game we're we're going to review is uh, gets a lot of hype for being non-confrontational. Cool. Now, listener, take a second and guess. We're going to give you a, a nice three-second pause. You can guess which side you think either one of us is arguing. One, two, three. Okay. Now, please, Moby, <laughs> tell them <laughs> who's arguing well, what. Well, okay. Well, Le- Leland is going to argue cooperative, and I'm going to argue competitive. What? You may say that, but you know what? Taking the curtain away from the Wizard of Oz 
um, seeing what's going on in the background. To be honest, listener, when we do do a condescending controversy, which is not often these days, I basically just pick as producer of the show who gets what. So, and we basically just, whether it's devil's advocate or not, we just argue. Um, I mean, there were cases in the beginning where we felt strongly on certain points and they may come up in the future. But to be honest, I don't think we feel strongly on either point. But my hope was we would extend each other's minds and by uh, extension, your mind. Make you think when it comes to these things. So, in the spirit of cooperation, Leland, why don't you lead off with your first point you may have on why cooperative board games could be superior? Okay, I mean, this is a pretty... This is the first thing my mind went to is I I think this the fact that you are working together is just a, 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 the best way to introduce new people into the tabletop board game hobby. There there you know you you don't have the uh, you don't have to be adversarial as you're teaching the rules. A lot of the a lot of my points are going to be fairly scenario specific, right? You know. Like there's always going to be the counterpoint and saying, well, what if one player at the table is an asshole? And I mean, right. you know, that's what a lot of some counterpoints could boil down to some of my, my my arguments here. But that's going to kind of occur with any game, right? I just think if you in in a, in a perfect in a vacuum, right? Playing these games in a vacuum at a great table with people that you know and love, I think this is where you got to come to. I'm I'm sure either one of our points here, but. I just think the the being able being able to work together is just going to make it so much easier to teach a game to somebody and maybe introduce them to some of the mechanisms that are prevalent even between cooperative and competitive board games. Yeah, and I'm I'm pondering that there because I don't know if this is counter argument or a for argument, but I mean, what is the classic board game that leads people into more advanced board games as Settlers of Catan? That's the classic gateway board game. But that one is actually pretty intensely competitive. There's a lot of, you know, screwing people over by surrounding them with roads or, you know, putting settlements where you're boxing someone in. So I'm just kind of pondering that. I see what you say, though. Um, You know, especially when it's people that are maybe a little meeker or don't or are not super competitive in their daily lives. I think there are certain board games for sure that can just make just turn people off. Like a game like Twilight Imperium 4 with that complexity and the knowledge of strategy you need for that. I could totally see that turning people off of advanced board games if that's like, you know, is is this what it is? Well, yes, there needs to be a progression. I just think a cooperative game is a very low step in that progression scale right you know you're walking up the ladder if it's a progression ladder i think that they they can lend to that more potentially more favorably than a competitive game and yes you're right again you have to cater to the table because maybe there are i mean i mean obviously like the the pandemic comes right to mind as a quarter game it's it's pretty rules light uh it's not that difficult it, it introduces a, an interesting kind of almost like an AI for, for how the game runs itself, which is going to carry over to other cooperative games, uh, many uh, cooperative games, because, again, you're, you're, the table is playing against the game, not against each other. Uh, so, so they can all learn it and 
parse through the mechanisms and the rules and how to overcome the systems of the game together rather than having sit there and do it yourself, uh, especially if you're playing with more experienced players, which I guess this is kind of almost into my rolling into my second point, but everything's going to be connected. It e- also equalizes kind of the skill level of the table, really. Mm. Because you can play with somebody way more experienced who's who, who you know likes to read rule books in their spare time and has a massive collection and plays you know constantly game game after game after game for weeks and weeks and weeks even the same game multiple times and you're playing with inexperienced people because you're working together it really I think it really does equalize that thing and I think again it 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 lends to being more accessible to more people generally speaking. And I would agree with that to a degree um, about, you know, it, it, lo- it evens the playing field. In fact, I think one of, I think my first point here almost is, is the mirror image of that counterpoint. So competitive games, this is my first point, competitive games expose you to more strategies than co-op because you cannot simply agree with the path of a veteran player or a more dominant personality, each player must, by definition, try their own strategy. I mean, I guess unless, you know, Leland, you were teaching us a game and literally telling someone in a competitive game what to do. Um, But assuming the person knows the rules, say it's game two after the uh, practice round, that person must have their own strategy, whereas in a cooperative game, they can simply follow the leader, whoever that might be, and be like, Oh yeah, sure. Let let's do that, and I'll roll along. And there's personalities that will do that, and maybe it's comfortable for them. But I don't think that actually helps them learn anything, stretch their mind, and develop their own strategies. I also I think I mean yeah, for having to think for yourself is obviously a lot different than a group think, right? And I think both either end of this teeter totter with the board game sitting in the middle of it, <laughs> right? They, they fire something differently in, in an individual's mind and can give somebody a different feeling or, or outcome or, or sense of satisfaction at the end of that game. And yes, while there are people that will be okay to go or to just follow along to what could be like an alpha gamer is a, is a, well-known term when it comes to cooperative board games that person at the table that says okay we have to do this this and this and this because this is the best way to go there's no even sense in talking about anything else but what you brought up is if somebody uh, again an experienced player playing a competitive game at the table is pointing out to every player saying what they should do that's that's the exact same thing it's just in a different context but they're still being an alpha gamer so that type of player again where we got to talk about it at being in a vacuum and we're we don't have those players at our table because we don't play with those kind of people. So those edge case scenarios, we need to strip out of our argument here and boil it down right to, you know, right to the meat of it, cut off the fat and get right into that juicy protein <laughs> because otherwise we can argue edge cases all day. So, so you would say though that an alpha gamer at the table is an edge case? I'm saying that in the in the in the context of our argument it's an edge case because it's a caveat that could be applied to every point that either one of us is going to make, you know, point X. Oh, but it, unless there's an alpha gamer, <laughs> you know, or in lieu of an alpha gamer. So that's what I, that's what I mean. Like 
there's so many there's so many exceptions to any of these these arguments that we can bring up. No, I I mean my overall point was that competitive games force the individual player to take agency of their game. It forces them to try their own strategy, which I think is beneficial because I I think that beyond recreation games can actually help you mentally, like help you with skills that you can project beyond the, the world of just playing a game. And to be forced to to come up with your own strategies is, is one. And honestly, my points that I have kind of connect to that overall theme. Um, but uh, I will go allow back to you to make point two that you've got. Well, I mean, before we move on, I think the correct game, the a well-designed cooperative game will also allow each player individually to contribute to an overall goal as a team to figure out what they need to do in their game in in their role perhaps if you're assigned to it uh, i mean you even think of, of a game like spirit island where everybody is playing async basically like asynchronous powers um or sorry not asynchronous a- asymmetrical powers vastly different spirits you play and how you manage the same threat that everyone at the table is dealing with the same threat on the board, but everyone does it in their own way. So different. In fact, that you couldn't possibly tell everybody at the table how to do their own role because you got to focus on what you're doing because if (laughs) then you're one cog in that team that isn't turning properly, if you're focusing on everybody else. So I think really it depends Uh, a poorly designed cooperative game can definitely lend a ton of credence to all of your points, for sure. Well, that's awesome, because I haven't made my other two points yet. <laughs> but I, I appreciate that. I guess you that the points you are, so I think I think you're short-sighting. You're sh- I think you're, sh- you're, you're undercutting the value uh, and individu- individuality that can be presented in a cooperative game. Well, and again, I think we're talking here ranges. So you're right. You're right. I'm sure there are are lots of cooperative games, including ones we played, where all players can take agency and be awesome and pull off great feats. But I also think that cooperative games can expose people that are just playing the game casually because their boyfriend or girlfriend maybe is playing it or aren't really into it. And then you maybe have you know one or two players that you're dragging along, and that can actually make the game much less fun. You think that those scenarios would make a cooperative game would would impact a cooperative game more significantly than those exact same people would impact a competitive game? I I actually do, yeah, I actually do wow, because I, you are you are far off the mark. I, I think there is a sense of ego and pride in most people that when the spotlight's shining on them for their turn in a competitive game, that yeah they'll try harder. Whereas in the same cooperative game. That same person will be more dragged along. But then in a cooperative sense, that person is... Basically becomes an NPC per- in my mind. Okay, but then but then there's somebody playing suboptimally in a competitive game. Because I don't think... I don't believe that if somebody is inclined and not enjoying themselves playing in a cooperative game, that they're going to have that type of person maybe they're just not into games and like you say yes they're maybe at a group gathering and they're they're giving the game a try but they're not into it and rather than dropping out of the game and ruining it for everybody they're just gonna play along at status quo 
moving pieces around, not giving a shit how well they're doing, that can impact competitive play too. Because if you're, every other player at the table is so inspired, like you say, to, to rise to the challenge, to, to inflate their own ego against everyone else's, that's being impacted by somebody who is not doing something at the table. And more importantly, that p- player who is just going along is going to probably more significantly impact a single other player at that table and destroy that one individual's experience at that table. Whereas in a cooperative game, that that impact of that player that is not so into the game is so much lessened because it's spread across the whole table rather than a, a direct individual. But again, when I say we're th- talking about these games in a vacuum, it's so hard to be like, well, if you're playing at a table with somebody like that, then maybe don't play games with that person because they're clearly not into it. Yeah, you know, so truth be told, a lot of what I'm saying was inspired by how our original Dungeons and Dragons game went where I was DM. Okay. Um, okay. So I can see that. your your ex-girlfriend, to be quite honest, was not into the game from the very beginning. That legendary line, Maddie, roll your fucking mods. Um <laughs> you know <laughs> add your mods like like that was she was the definition of someone who was just playing because her friends weren't being pulled along um but then and and i know he listens to the podcast but i i gotta throw it out there listener dan as well who was part of our party um listener dan did not like me when i learned how to make original monsters and introduce them into the game more than monsters from the books um he became that where it was like he would show up but was not at all motivated to to play the game. And so as I was thinking of this, uh, maybe I was giving too much credence to one event and two people, but I mean, it severely brought down the game to the point that like the game collapsed within a session or two of Dan checking out. Yeah. Okay, and then you obviously in this scenario you're saying that D&D is 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 taking the role as of a competitive game or sorry cooperative game yeah exactly and that D and now this i mean again this is the part where i try to build consensus even though it's it's condescending controversy D and may be a game where the enjoyment is affected by a weak link much more than other cooperative games or you notice it more because it's ongoing like maybe the difference is like you know, you wouldn't notice a weak link, someone who's not really enjoying the game in Pandemic, but in Pandemic Legacy, if that person was part of your group, it would be much less enjoyable. I'm trying to resolve that. Yeah. One. No, I get what you're saying, because, again, even in my example of Spirit Island, being able to promote individuality in a cooperative setting, it's it's all, like like you say, this the sliding scale, it's almost too individual because yes if we have that person that isn't into it in spirit island that is if you're playing with four people that is a quarter of the people not doing or or addressing effectively the threat that the game is posing to you assuming that the whole table is functioning uh together and functioning as well as they can uh under the circumstances that 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 come out on the board with the you know how the game progresses so I understand. I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. And I guess, I guess it really, <laughs> like I said at the beginning, like it is very scenario and like situ game specific, uh, potentially, right? How well either type of game will function, uh, when compared to each other. 
Um, did you make your second point yet, or or were we still debating my first point? No, I'm I'm kind of going across a, a a few different points. Uh, really, I mean, we discussed kind of the equalization of the table for me and the uh, being able to introduce the games. Again, all of which are the introductory thing. Like, if you're somebody that is introducing games to new people and you're you're into the hobby, most likely you are going to know or have a, a, a pretty good idea of which games you're going to pick for those specific people. Right. So while a cooperative game in general would be easier to be able to explain the rules and help new players as you're playing the game without hindering your own gameplay as the person teaching or hindering the gameplay of somebody else at the table with you that does know how to play the game, that's not going to be the perfect type of game or style of game to choose for every player at your table, right? So that's why, like, you, it's so hard to actually parse out which is which is better because it's like I always say about my own collection. My collection is is fairly varied. It is not refined or distilled at all, but I do love the collection of games I have because I feel that I have such a wide variety of games where I could pick a game for nearly any group of players or situation and have something that is appropriate for the people at that table, the number of people, the the setting, uh, just of the gathering, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And I mean, you you are on the bell curve. Like, you're on the exceptional cooperative end where I've seen you teach myself and other people very competitive board games and you are very willing to sacrifice yourself uh to properly <laughs> teach the game whereas you know i know someone like my brother you know listener mike i mean those people would not be able to teach a competitive board game without still trying to make sure that they win it so so no i get i get your point on that and i guess my last few points you could probably i, I just envision you rolling your eyes at this and this is actually one of the first times we're recording where i can't see you but i mean i basically have this on my soapbox that you know we don't live in a participation ribbon culture people want competition and the competition builds character and helps people be more assertive which will help them in everyday life and that's kind of like a soapbox thing i could see you go it's not the point of a board game but i don't know it helped me. It it helps me when I get competitive in a game. Honestly, I am. I also I, I believe that uh, participation ribbon is uh, kind of line of thinking is a bunch of bullshit, and that especially in children, uh, they need to know how to lose and how to win. So I will definitely concede that point because I'm I I just personally I think the same way. I don't. <laughs> I do believe that that as as a hobby, a lot of what you what a, an individual an individual can learn playing and experience the games and and the socializing that, that we've talked about the game the board game being a, a form of social lubricant before on the show right. that those values and those lessons can should can and should be applied to every aspect of life. I mean, so you can say that about. Uh, a number of other hobbies and activities right like it's 
these things that we put so much time into, they're always so much more than just the thing that they physically are or represent, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they have the tendrils, and then when they sink into you, they sink into your mind and, and your thinking, they influence everything around them. They influence the way you look at things, the way, the way you look at uh, rules of other games, potentially, or... Um, or, or maybe even just the way you look at a authority, or, or if if a particular game is trying to to emulate a set of core values, or like there's, I I know like we, once we get to crazy about cardboard, like this is something we can bring up. There is literally like a board, anything you're in, any theme or any any uh, genre you can think of. There's a, like a board game for it exists. Like there's. If you like chai tea, you could play a game literally called chai tea. <laughs> like, it's 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 phenomenal. It's just it, it kind of blows my mind sometimes. Yeah, no, I I think um, first of all, I'm surprised that you agree with me on that, but um, I think that's that's good. I I don't know. I'm kind of in shock that you were conceding me on that point, and I guess because I'm so <laughs> flattered by your your conceding. You know, I'll say, like, I, I definitely love cooperative games, um, especially with the people that uh, that we typically play with. And, um, you know, I think they both have a space, a, a big space. And, um, you know, I think the game that we're going to review in Crazy About Cardboard may be the best balance of that I've come across of a game that's technically competitive but doesn't feel like it. So, yeah, um, there, there's another one of our endless teases. I don't have any other points. I mean, it, it really was was that. Okay. I had one last, but I, I before you, you know, get all get, get your half chub on for uh, me agreeing with your last point there. I'm not saying or trying to advocate that cooperative games are the cardboard representation of a participation ribbon. A good cooperative game is a difficult cooperative game where you lose more often than you win. So you are still earning that victory, but you are earning it as a team. There's that camaraderie in figuring out how to earn it. So I by no means think that playing a cooperative game means you are getting the, the equivalent of a participation ribbon (laughs) playing, you know, with six year olds playing soccer and not keeping score, you know, you know what I mean? I, I do. I do actually, because now that I think about it, the, the cooperative games you and I have played together, that they are quite tough, that alien card building game. Yeah. They need to, they still need to present that challenge. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that, that's a good point. And, and most of them are challenging. I even think to those card games you have where like, we have to guess what numbers coming up or what everybody else is thinking like the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, those those are very challenging. And I don't think we beat it. I don't even know how close we got. No. <laughs> the mind is funny. I haven't played the mind in forever. I mean, the only the only cooperative game. Now, I love this game to death, so I'm not going to slag it, but the the one exception to a quote-unquote cooperative game that is easy has has to be Fiasco. But <laughs> I've always thought of Fiasco as an experience, not even really a game. It's a set of rules that creates a role-playing experience. It engages the imagination. Sure, sure. And that's also more uh, separated uh, into like the RPG 
category, right? The TTRPG category rather than the tabletop board gaming, I think, right? So uh, there's there's the difference as, as far as uh, this this storytelling game. It's just this storytelling experience, as you say. Like, But there are board games that also can give you that and, and strive to to present that to its players too. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I made my, my argument for this side. I thought it was a good debate. I mean, if you still have another point or anything, let me know, but... Well, my my very last point, and this, again, kind of brought on by, by the game we're going to be talking about in Crazy About Cardboard, is, to me, the, the a cooperative game is... It's it's all player engagement. And yes, it's not, it's not antagonistic player engagement, but it's still player engagement. And you're not just going off in, 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 in quite a number of competitive games. You... Basis, many of them, especially some of the, the more Euro-style games, you're basically at the table playing, you're playing competitive solitaire. Everybody's doing their own thing, not really interacting with each other, but still trying to compete with each other and get the most points. But in a cooperative game, I feel like you're, you're you, ideally you are engaged the whole time and contributing to something the entire time, interacting with everybody at the table the whole time. Right. It's it's not not the competitive solitaire feeling. Yeah. I'm trying to think that what was that game? We used to play it. it it's like a legacy game. We played it with Ghost Marty. You're building up that place. We haven't played it in like a year and a half. Yeah, Charterstone. Charterstone. Is that is that game cooperative? That game's competitive, right? But it's like competitive solitaire again feels like yeah it kind of is but we're also like cooperate cooperatively building the board uh, yeah that's a strange one that's like one of those in-between things that's like it's the same thing as like a game like dead of winter where you're all trying to survive the zombie apocalypse and the dead of winter the literal dead of winter but there can be a hidden traitor that's out working for themselves so really you can't trust everybody but you have to work together you know like those those uh, traitor aspects in the in these cooperative games. Yeah, I, I just thought that was an, an interesting one to to bring up there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, that that's that's all I've got. I would take a girder. I will take it. I will accept a girder too. I will okay. say both games. <laughs> a beautiful tie. <laughs> a beautiful tie. There's good points on both sides, and I do I don't think it's possible to say that. A competitive game or a cooperative game is superior over each other. No, nah, no, that's 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 stupid. Yeah, exactly, that's stupid. Uh, personally, though, I, I actually I do uh, prefer competitive games <laughs> over cooperative games. And I actually prefer cooperative. So what does that say? <laughs> well, it's good that we defended our authentic morals in that duel, good sir. <laughs> ah, good return on that on that volley. <laughs> We're looking at. We're looking at our pistols being like, shouldn't I be shooting that one instead? I I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, that's good. Well, well, let's let's get into another or our first real segment this episode. Listener, you get you're getting a lot of value this episode for your Bam. Patreon goal. Damn listener. Um, we still got two full segments to go. So this one is video game variety show. And uh, this one is called Bungie Jumping. And, you know, I wanted to discuss the Sony Bungie acquisition, um, give, give a little history on it, because it's weird. It is weird. And I wanted to discuss, and even just, I mean, the T-Ed podcast is essentially us 
you know, talking about shit that we hope other people find is interesting, interesting conversations. And I want to know what Leland thinks about the whole Sony acquisition of of Bungie. Um, so basically last month, uh, following a major announcement where Microsoft bought Blizzard Activision for like a record-setting deal, I don't know offhand how much it was, but major acquisition of IP. Just shy of $70 million when they're... Also, their uh, market value is about fifty-one million, so they overpaid. M- billion, you mean? Billion with a B, not million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah. yes. A billion. Thank you. Yeah. So no worries. And, and so Sony then later, uh, I guess the announcement was on on February first or or so. They bought Bungie, which is weird because they created Halo, which was the original Xbox's flagship IP. But Sony bought them for $3.6 billion. And people were starting to go, well, like, why? Is this to try to keep up with the Joneses with Xbox? But as I read, these sorts of acquisitions take about six months to put together. So Sony wouldn't have known that Microsoft was buying Blizzard Activision. So what's... What's the point? Now, one of the things that you have to know is after Sony bought Bungie, they said Bungie can still, they're going to function independently. They can still develop for multiple systems, presumably including Xbox, so like no exclusivity. You know, they're, like I said, they're going to be independent, so they're not going to be micromanaged by Sony. And really, why? That's the thing I can't figure out. Now, Leland, have you done any reading into this acquisition or or not really um i did uh i did a little bit not exactly on like you know how exactly any of the, uh, the deal went down um but yeah it, it is really it was like surprising like you're like oh bungie because if you don't if you don't know much about bungie then yes the first thing you're going to associate with them is is halo but uh for a time i mean they they, they put out the destiny game so destiny 2 is uh, basically like live service games. And that's kind of feels like that seems like what Sony is trying to move towards and, and focus on because Bungie is, is, is pretty adept at, at managing, uh, uh, those types of games, those live service games that online, you know, like destiny two is an online first person shooter and Bungie was under Activision for a time, a couple of years ago before they went independent and it was it was clear like the the influence of Activision on Destiny Two in particular was incredibly clear. Um, just pushing all these obtuse monetization um, that once Bungie became independent, they kind of righted the ship on the game, and it definitely improved the game uh, the, the game the favor of, of people that played the game, and and basically from the sounds of it, like saved saved that game and potentially that that gaming franchise. I mean. I've never been into playing the Destiny games, but they're they're popular games. Um, clearly popular enough where it spawned a sequel, right? Yeah. So I I think that so that was kind of the reading I did of kind of these these theories of why why this move, like you say, and it really seems like like Sony is almost like Sony is basically just trying to diversify. They're wanting to be able to fall back on this kind of. Uh, being like this software developer more than anything rather rather than like this hardware pusher which they're traditionally like sony traditionally is and and you know still is really like lateral movements yeah 
Yeah, and I mean, that's where, again, I, I go with, like, is it is it keeping up with the Joneses? Because one thing that Sony has never been through their history really is a software developer. They've been the hardware guys. They make hardware that, uh, for some of their iterations, is quite easy to program for, um, especially compared to Nintendo. Mind you, I think Xbox has a better reputation for easy programming, but... What I read was something about them wanting to make Bungie into a multimedia empire, like TV and movies, which makes me go like, okay, but you know, you spent $3.6 billion, like that's a lot of risk to hopefully turn a few IPs into successful TV shows or movies. Like, really? And I mean, it, it pales in comparison with the purchase of Activision Blizzard, I mean... I guess if you're going to swallow a fish, that's one of the biggest fish in the sea. You know, what doesn't make sense is financially as well. So I, w- I want to read you a quote. I've got this open from uh, comicbook.com. And uh, so this quote is by uh, manager, director of equity research, Michael Patchter, uh, speaking to Yahoo Finance. Uh, and I guess Michael is part of a group called Wedbush Securities. So... Um, here's the quote. Well, before the quote, it says, Michael Patcher said the deal seemed to be made in desperation. Patcher compared the cost of the deal to other moves in the industry, claiming it was far too expensive for what Sony will get out of it. Here's the quote. So quote started. Bungie went for $4 million per developer. Most deals are between 250000 and a million. I've seen these deals as close as you know, $2 million per developer. This is crazy talk, end quote, Patcher told Yahoo Finance. Quote again. And just to compare and contrast, EA bought Respawn three or four years ago for $700 million with 400 developers. Those guys generate $700 million a year in revenue. Bungie does about $200 million in revenue. So I think Sony vastly overpaid. I think this was a statement that we're not going to let Microsoft get ahead of us, so we'll just buy something out of desperation. It's not really a deal that makes a whole lot of sense to me. The others do, meaning, end quote, meaning the other deals. Yeah, so it's interesting. I didn't know about that whole per developer thing, and unfortunately the article doesn't actually mention how many developers are with Bungie. I guess you could reverse engineer it, but if they're paying double per developer then is like the top industry record. I mean, that's like, you know, basically like the neighbor, you know, you see your neighbor get a sports car. You're like, I must have a sports car. I don't care which one. I'll pay anything just to put a sports car in your parking lot. Well, I mean, maybe there was like this bidding war between Sony and Microsoft behind the scenes. Like for, for Bungie, like who maybe why wouldn't Microsoft want to get Bungie? I mean, why wouldn't they scoop them up? If they're as cheap as they should have went for, then why that's a drop that's 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 nothing for Microsoft. Yeah, actually, that's a good to snag point. Bungie, right? I mean, uh, clearly, like it's been so long where that Bungie's worked with Microsoft. I'm sure many of these people that might be able to know each other and you know, in passing, would probably don't even work there anymore. Um, but like, why wouldn't Microsoft want Bungie? So. Who knows what the fuck went on behind it? Like you say, this a deal like this had to have been in the works for months, but does that mean, based on the size, that the deal for Microsoft and Activision also would have been in the works for at least as long? 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that's that's true. And actually, what might feed into your point indirectly, another article I read, actually have open right now, is that um, Xbox, Xbox's top boss, Phil Spencer, um, he actually replied to the official announcement tweet from PlayStation and Bungie saying, you know, that uh, Bun- PlayStation bought Bungie. And Phil Spencer tweeted... Uh, from his official account, congrats to the talented teams at Bungie. Great testament to your creativity. Congrats to PlayStation and Herman Holtz, who's their big guy, on adding a talented team to your studio's team. That, that to me, almost comes off as like a good job, good sir. You won the bidding war. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. But if you're a nice guy maybe. and you lost a bidding war, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. Look, I, I mean, I honestly, I really wonder how antagonistic this you know the decades worth of console wars actually has been like you know how much more are the consumers and the fanboys of either console i mean i am kind of excluding nintendo here just for the sake of brevity really in this oh, discussion please. but <laughs> please no, exclude I, nintendo i, all, I think, all you I think nin- no i i honestly i've told you this in person i think nintendo deserves to be excluded from the console wars They've so diverged in their own direction that yeah, they don't I, care about it. They don't they don't compete anymore. They 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 just do novelty shit in their own first party games, and then you know Sega's with them and Namco and a bunch of the older companies, and they lease a few Microsoft things. But mostly it's just they're they're the old guard doing their own thing with their own yeah. So that they don't compete. Sony and Microsoft compete. Yeah. Look, honestly, I, I think honest I really think that the whole concept of a cons war is old guard itself. Like this is it's so stupid. And, and this is something that you know, young as a younger uh, uh, gamer that I f- fell into head first. I mean, it, it, I was as the generations of console have gone by, I've kind of I've flip-flopped on which was my main gaming console. Um I've usually always owned both though. So I've been able to take advantage of, of, you know, the exclusive games on either side. And the exclusive games back in the day is, is what were supposed to be console sellers. So I would love to see, I was so curious to see some numbers on somebody doing, crunching the, the actual benefit of having exclusive titles to your console, as far as it equating to additional sales of units of console. I, I want to see some analysis on that because I would be incredibly curious because I am very dubious on the benefit of an exclusive title these days. I mean, just look at even what Sony has been doing is moving a lot of their previously exclusive to the PlayStation console uh, titles to being uh, playable and available on, on PC now. Mm, that is true. So with that and Xbox Game Pass... Really, all it means is the best gamer to be is a fucking PC gamer. They can literally, you will get everything on your PC. There's no downside to having a, P, a good, decent PC rig now. Why the fuck would you bother with any of these, this bullshit console war? And especially even like with, uh, in 2020, Microsoft bought out uh, ZeniMax, which is the parent company of Bethesda. So the Elder Scrolls 6, which is going to be huge moneymaker, is not going to be available on the PlayStation. Yeah. So that's a huge hit. I wonder, I I mean, I'm just so curious to seeing, especially a game like that, 
how that will impact console sales for the the latest uh, Xbox. I'm I just I want to know the numbers. I want to know the breakdown. Yeah, as do I. I mean, this this current Xbox though, like the the actual console itself, the fact that it's like completely backward compatible, like that thing is a friggin' beast, especially now that they uh, you know, bought up so many IPs. You know, interesting thing to what you're saying, you know, with the lack of exclusive titles, the irony is it may give us the actual truest console wars where software is now disconnected from the consoles. So it's literally which console and its hardware and its advantages do you like better? Do, do you see what yeah, I'm saying? I guess. The potential of that? I do see what you're saying. But honestly, literally the, the hardware differences between both consoles has been so insignificant to a layman and even some, you know even someone knows what the fuck they're talking about when they look at the specs they're so insignificant who the fuck who's gonna nitpick about that it's it's literally gonna come down to branding right it's are you a sony you like are you a sony guy or are you a microsoft guy are you a pc or are you a mac like you know what i mean like that's what it is I guess the PC Mac is a little is is a is a pretty different conversation as far as functionality between those two types of computers, you know. So that's a bad example, but it's literally like, are you a, are you Adidas or are you Nike? It's just fucking clothing. Yeah, I well, I mean, I agree with that to a point. I I think you know Microsoft has certainly made a niche as if you want to do multiplayer online gaming on a console, like we're your bros, we're your dudes. They were doing that with Xbox Live very early on. I think the... So what? Invest- Everyone fucking does it now. So what? So what if they did it first? It doesn't matter. It's what they're doing now. Okay, but... I, and there's I no, honestly don't no know the answer There's no advantages to gaming on an Xbox versus gaming on a PlayStation. See, that I, I actually legitimately am ignorant of that. I, I've never heard you being like, Yeah, Moby, I'm doing three nights of PlayStation online gaming this week. You know, I'm going to online game the fuck out of my PlayStation. That's because I'm, I'm in general not a, a, not an online gamer. I am not, good sir. I am not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, that's that. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I mean, I again, I maybe it's not a big deal to you. It would be for me. I mean, I love that Xbox uh, is completely uh, backwards compatible through all generations now. Um, for yeah. me, that's a okay. All, the all generation thing is fine, but PS Five is the same. Is it? Really? You want to pl- if you want to play backwards. all your PS4 shit, you can do it on the PS5. I don't know how far PS3, back it goes. PS2, PS1. See, that's the thing. Xbox goes all the way back to the beginning. Honestly, <laughs> that is important to somebody like you. That is not important. That is not important to a 20, someone in their early 20s, right? That's going to okay. that's going to spend their money on on a, on a $600 console. That shit is not important to the vast majority of their market. Uh, like it really isn't because people one People aren't holding people. I, people aren't buying physical games anymore. It's all digital copies. <laughs> yeah, I know. Believe me, I know. I, I yeah, but I'm just I'm just saying like the 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 positive attributes that both you and I agree on are are shifting to being more insignificant than I think we give them or we are realizing or want to admit because those things still are important to us just because we're. But, you know, there's still a whole generation of, of us, too, that maybe those those aspects and attributes continue to be important, which is probably shown just in the fact that they build these machines to allow you to be completely backwards compatible like that. 
So maybe in my point, maybe I'm being hyperbolic on my statement too. I don't know, but just to me, it just feels it just feels like they're moot points because I I don't know. It just it doesn't feel like it's even something we're talking about. Okay, okay, that that I think you've got a good point for the younger generation. I mean, I wish I, I hate the fact that there is a younger adult generation. First of all, but um, <laughs> right, we used to be that generation. I know. Why have we become what we don't choose to be? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I think actually, Leland, uh, this this speaks a lot. I mean, the whole point of our confusion over this, or at least mine, is um, you and I are of a generation that has seen unprecedented multiple, like, earth-shaking changes in the video game industry. I mean, you're, you're a couple years younger than me, but, I mean... When I remember as a kid, still vividly at the point where everybody had a NES or like an Atari. Right. Like I, I actually remember the launch of the Super Nintendo and the first kid that got it. it was my brother's best friend at the point and, and like playing one pretty early on and getting my mind blown. I mean, those were the days of like Sega Genesis versus Super Nintendo. It was like a very clear cut console war. You know, and that continued basically until I think you would call it like the 6 or 8 gen, I don't know, whatever the fuck the GameCube, PS2, first Xbox One was. And that's, I think, where the console wars started to to diverge. But, I mean, you and I have seen all this stuff. We've seen exclusive. Like, back in the day when I had a GameCube and you had a PS2, like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it annoyed the fuck out of you that GameCube, your dreaded Nintendo had an exclusive Resident Evil 4. Now, it eventually came, right, to PS2. Not a great version. I remember those readathons, Loading time. <laughs> somehow, like, you were always falling behind. But, um, I, I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, certainly there were exclusives that other consoles got that I was like, shit, I wish I could have this on my GameCube or my Wii or or whatever. Um, I think, uh, I think that would have been true just but the problem is because i never really had uh, a nintendo as my main gaming console i never played or, or cared about any of the uh, exclusive franchises like you know anything mario or uh metroid for, is huge right like i i've never played a single metroid game and i bet you i would fucking love them i would love the hell out of them i'm sure um, same with Zelda. I don't care. I don't give a fuck about Zelda. I've just never, I just never played them. I'm sure I would love them. I know I would enjoy Breath of the Wild, but I don't have a system to play them on. And I, I don't care that I'm missing them because I don't know what I'm missing, I guess really is what it is. Interesting. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, and I think it's me, like me with that, with PlayStation, Xbox too. I've never owned an Xbox and I've owned a PlayStation one and a PlayStation two. And that's as far as I, I've got. But, okay, maybe that's th there's a point in there in that we don't know what we've been missing for so many generations now that that's another nail in the coffin to the console wars because we just don't give a fuck about what the other consoles have anymore. <laughs> right, there's nothing, there's nothing that's, that sells it. So, so I, now I, I am admittedly a Sony fanboy. I mean, I... I, so I had the PlayStation 2, and then the next generation, I had the Xbox 360, because, I mean, the PS3, honestly, they shit the bed with the PS3. Yeah. And then I'm P and then PS4, and then I, I, I would like to get a PS5. I have no interest in owning any type of Xbox at all. 
uh, and, and really the re- and it's not even because like I don't give a shit about exclusives on the on the PlayStation. Uh, one really right now, I'm, I mean, my PlayStation is is my home home entertainment. It's just literally where I stream shows and movies. Like that's all it really is used for, <laughs> aside from the odd game, of course. But like even even fucking God of War, I could play God of War. I could play Ragnarok on a on a PC, and I have a computer that can run it. So I don't need, I don't, literally, I don't need a console, but I would like to have the PS5 uh, so I could, you know, don't have to be sitting at my desk to play it, I suppose. That's, that's honestly, that's, that's a big thing for me is like, I hate being, I don't know, I, 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 I there are some games where I just want to sit on the couch and, and fucking game, right? And I want to be, the uh, that's where I'm the most comfortable anyways. But that's, that's, again, that's completely personal, but like, there's nothing that draws me to an xbox even like with the the xbox game pass i can get that on my pc and i can have this access to a huge catalog of games for like 15 bucks a month and play them on my pc why would i get an xbox to have access to that stuff that that actually is a great point now with their acquisition of activision that library is going to get a huge bump in titles which is great for mike it's honestly great for microsoft (laughs) but how is that selling units of consoles i don't this is what like obviously that has to translate into units more units sold but i don't know how significant that is uh but 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 to me rather than exclusive it's that stuff that is going to boost unit sales and now i assume that overall for microsoft sales of their individual consoles is what they strive for but now that both Sony and Microsoft, they're continuing, like like I kind of said off the top, like they're diversifying with all picking up all these studios, selling the consoles doesn't need to be their main money driver, right? Like that that doesn't need to be their main goal anymore. It's literally just sales <laughs> overall. It's sales of everything that they have their hand in. So it doesn't matter if their actions are contributing to selling more console units because that is no longer the the war that's not the war they're fighting war does change apparently <laughs> yeah yeah no not not only sales not only sales but i think uh where where microsoft has been smart is like subscription-based gaming i mean to yeah. have that amount of titles on your fingertips but you have to have a subscription it's like okay i don't want a subscription well, look at this, like, amount of games you can have for the subscription. It's like, long live the subscription. Honestly, I think oh, it's going to yeah. get to that point. Like, Microsoft has so many IPs at their fingertips now. Like, I know I, I blow Nintendo for their first-party games, and I'll still buy the next Nintendo, because that's where all the Zeldas and Marios and shit are going to be. But my goodness, does Microsoft probably have the best lineup of ips in video game history right now it's it's honestly pretty phenomenal um yeah just like just that man that uh yeah starcraft it, i just wonder like so, sure I, absolutely Any, yeah anything blizzard right like um huge sellers all huge sellers even though their numbers of a lot of blizzard titles their numbers have, have been declining uh in recent years but regardless they're all money makers right like they're they're positive they're in the they're all well in the black <laughs> and yeah. microsoft is going to make make all that money back uh i think relatively quickly depending especially depending on what they decide to do with all of it but i mean do you do you think though because that was uh, a question that a lot of people had 
when they first heard of the Activision um, um, acquisition, Activision acquisition, are any of those titles, are they going to potentially pull them from being available on the PlayStation and make them strictly Xbox and PC? I do. I think I think the end game for Microsoft, mark my words, February, we're recording February 7th, 2022. I think the end game for Microsoft is an expensive premium. It may have tiers. You may have only access, like say, you can access a game, but not its DLC at a lower tier. But for the most part, premium, like 15, 20 bucks a month subscription, maybe even more to have access to those IPs on both your Xbox and your PC. That's where I think this goes. That they have an overwhelming amount of content that they create this near insurpassable online streaming service for games. And and like you're right, you know, physical releases are getting less and less. This probably is the last generation for any of the consoles, Nintendo included. That will have physical release. I mean, I fucking buy all the physical Nintendo games I can for Switch. All it is is a plastic case with a chip. You don't even get a manual <laughs> anymore. I love yeah, manuals. Yeah. I love reading manuals. Yep, you get nothing yep. anymore. It's it's like the last vestige. So, but that's where I think they're going. Premium subscription service. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. It's it's the most sustainable. Um, and they're still also going to f- sell actual copies of many of those games. But what benefit do they get for restricting access, uh, uh, you know, X number of games from that catalog from being available on a PlayStation console? For those, yes, they can't, t- they can't take advantage of the, the Game Pass, but they can still buy the physical copy of that game, still generating revenue for Microsoft. What, is the, what could possibly be the benefit of keeping things exclusive to just an Xbox console or, or a PC. Loyalty and laziness. Laziness in the same oh, reason that you Jesus. and I buy Disney Plus and Crave and forget to shut it off for a bunch of months. They go there, they maybe discover new IPs they haven't played before, and they're just like, fine, I'll just be PC and Xbox from now on. I mean, what am I missing? I have so much here. I, I'm not joking. But, I mean, you're no, like going like, no, oh, but fuck. No, I am. I'm dumbfounded because because in your scenario, that is somebody that has the access, uh, the ability to play on any of these platforms. But if you're talking about somebody that only has a PlayStation, somebody currently only has a PS5, doesn't even have, not, not a PC gamer, but they have a PlayStation 5, you think that depending on the amount of titles they strip and take away from Sony, that that's going to have somebody that clearly has thrown their hat in the ring if this is a console war with Sony, on the side of Sony, that's going to be what's going to make them switch? They're going to get rid of their PS5, pick up an Xbox, and be done with it? Nope. But, but, this is the long game. The next generation. The next generation, I believe, Microsoft's banking, those Sony users go Xbox for the first time. That they have overwhelming reason to switch. Okay, but what... Okay, but what is gaming going to look like in two decades? It's going to be Nintendo and Microsoft. They're already friends. I I think Sony may become a bit player. I think they may be starved out of the market. I I could see Microsoft with its vast resources eventually buying a starved Sony. I know what I'm saying is madness in 2022. I, I could see it. 
in my mind, okay, would you would you agree with me that the the out of Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo, that Sony is the most in crisis at this moment, financially and in regards to an identity? Would you agree with that or not? No, you would not. So then, okay, no. So then, where does Sony rank? Uh, well, again, personally, Sony ranks at the top because that's because I'm a Sony fanboy. So I can't really, I can't even answer that objectively, honestly. But if you're talking about identity crisis, Microsoft has no identity. Microsoft is literally scoop. Microsoft is is now Amazon. Amazon has no identity. (laughs) You're right. They're like an amorphous blob, just sucking things up. Right. Exactly. Like it. It's literally they're spreading in every direction. So how do you? I mean, I don't know what you're. How do you form an opinion on something that is just? congealing over everything <laughs> like, well because it's a damn fun blob to stick a controller into well yeah and, and you know if, if one day in, in a decade come the next i don't i don't surely the next generation of consoles is at least 10 years away so uh, let's let's go to yeah. the let's go to the out full outset of that and say 15 years next generation console 15 years so this is a 15 year game plan that microsoft is enacting in, a, in lieu of a whole bunch of other stuff, obviously, right? It's not like they're putting all their eggs in one basket. Hoping to switch millions and millions and millions of PlayStation owners over to Xbox owners. And this is how they're doing it. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I get it. It's very direct. It's, it, it has no identity. But, I mean... If 70% of the games you want to play are on one console, like, literally all games you'd want to play, like, okay, hypothetically, you know, Xbox, I don't know, buys Konami, or Microsoft buys Konami. I don't even think that's that far-fetched. They announce, like, a new Silent Hill game, a new Resident Evil game, and, like, that game, those games get good reviews. Like, I'm buying an Xbox, man. I'm a professional. Sure. I don't have kids. I'm going to buy an Xbox. Like, there are system sellers, and Microsoft is damn close to having gathered enough great IPs to sell systems solely based off that, in my opinion. Okay, but again, this it all just kind of it comes back to me for really trying to understand how lucrative systems, a system seller is. You know what I mean? Like, this... I struggle without having those any real numbers to reference is how impactful a system seller is versus, you know, just also selling copies that can be played on a PlayStation. You know what I mean? Like it just, it, I realize what you, what you're and I, I understand what you're saying is they're just, they're trying to get all this market share. But to me, it still feels like they're restricting themselves from some of that market share before they've grabbed it. You know what I mean? Potentially. Again, this is all hypothetical. We have no idea what, what's, what they're actually going to do as far as exclusivity for some of these games. But It, it is hypothetical. And it's, it's interesting to see where they go. Because you're right. They could go the direction that you're kind of suggesting, which is why not just sell shit to, that can be played on a PlayStation? You're still going to make a lot of money. Like, why shut off this, this tap? And I don't think they're going to do that in the short term. But like you said, 15 years from now... 15 years is a long time in the gaming industry. Think of where we were 15 years ago from, you know, today. You know, a lot of changes have happened. So I would not be surprised if there's a switch. But short term, 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft's IPs release for for Sony's system, at least through this generation. But the long game is competition. I, I don't think Microsoft is... I, I think they'd want to stomp the boot on Sony. I don't, I don't know what else to say it. I don't think they'd want to do that to Nintendo. That's why you're like, well, I don't know where to place the, the companies. I'll go Microsoft, Nintendo, Sony. There you go. Very easy for me to say that. Financially... <laughs> Uh, no, I'm okay. sure Sony makes more money, but financial security, Nintendo, I think, is much more financially secure for the next two generations than Sony is. And what are you basing that off of? What on earth could you be basing that off of? Okay, Sony just well, dropped 3.6 billion bucks. Okay, well... The, and the, clearly the, they can overpay. They have so much money they can pay twice as much as for any fucking thing they want. Okay, well, the Switch is the best-selling Nintendo console of all time and also has the slight benefit over PlayStations and that Sony doesn't actually lose... Or, sorry, Nintendo doesn't actually lose money on their consoles. They're made of, like, general chips, general capacitors available on the market... I don't know if you know that, but Sony's been losing money on their consoles for forever. Yeah, dude, they've been losing money since the PS3, for sure. Right. Nintendo profits off their consoles, and they're selling a ton of Switches. And not only that, Nintendo has the entire old guard with them, which I mentioned before, Sega, Namco, all, whatever. Second party. That's the underrated thing about Nintendo. Not first party. They have loyal second party, which is all the old video game companies. Now... Also, they have a good working relationship with Microsoft. That's why Banjo-Kazooie just in the last week or so got released on the Switch online store, which is a huge deal if you're a Nintendo person. I mean, for Microsoft to give, you know, the best Rare property back to Nintendo on a leasing deal, that's going to, that's a partnership that is long-term as long as they don't fuck it up, where... You know, Microsoft and Nintendo realize they don't compete directly and they're buddy buddies and Nintendo does all their weird shit and uh, the, the, <laughs> the console war dies between the two of them. Uh, Nintendo is making a lot of money. Oh, of course. I mean, they they look, Nintendo has is good at what they've done and what they've carved for themselves. And, you know, their little their little niche in gaming, which somehow doesn't need to rely on hardware at all it's you know i mean look at how fucking <laughs> at all i guess at all all <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah at all at all i i and i was gonna you know say look how how trash the new pokemon actually looks but really it's a pokemon title so it's gonna sell regardless of what the fuck it looks or how it functions so that's not a bad that's not a good example but perhaps it is a good example because literally that is like every everything nintendo has right it doesn't matter what it looks like it's going to sell on its name alone, yeah. which is what Nintendo yeah, well. has, has built for themselves, right? They, you know, they, they've put in the work and and done the development to make that so. They make it so. Make it so with tea, <laughs> Earl Grey hot. That's what Miyamoto orders every morning. <laughs> so, okay, I mean, I, I get where I understand where you're coming from. I don't know what's going to happen. But, I mean, like, Sony, Sony isn't just video games. Sony is too big, to, right? Like, they're... They're not just making consoles. No, well, what Sony has over the other two companies um, is is multimedia. Like, Sony is a developer, rather good developer, of some good movie franchises in shows. And right, this actually right. brings us back full circle, because we should tie up the segment 
But Sony is saying that they bought Bungie to develop in, in, into a multimedia company. And frankly, of the three, if you want to take those IPs and try to make them into TV shows or movies, Sony's the best equipped of the, the three to do it. By far. Yeah, but what 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 makes Bungie equipped to be the one that they're picking to put into that role? Well, that that I can't find. And honestly, what you're saying right now is is what I tried to find this afternoon prepping. I don't I don't know. Like Yeah, like why why them? Right? I mean, like okay, so so the money is is different, like, you know, 3 billion versus 70 billion. But like if you were to develop TV shows or movies, the properties that Microsoft have bought are like imminently better. Are you fucking kidding me? A Starcraft show, World of yeah, Warcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you could be a competitor to Amazon's Lord of the Rings if you did it right. Like those IPs are way better. But I, I don't think Microsoft's cares about multimedia. I, I, I really think Microsoft's Endgame is monopoly. Like it's been for fucking windows i think they they want to stomp sony away i think they're very tolerant of nintendo having their niche but that serious gamers online gamers gamers that want what you can get on pc but on a console all of them go to microsoft it may be this pipe dream that they never get to but again you brought up 15 years from now i think that's where microsoft wants to be 15 years from now well, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. They literally they they have no choice but to grow into every aspect of the market. So it's like any business. And you're right; they won't have an identity. But in an, in a a video gaming world where that is all that exists, with the exception of Nintendo in its little corner, you don't need an identity. You don't have a choice. You get this big, you know, like statue of a rectangular box with a giant vent on top <laughs> you plug a controller into it and that's the beautiful future of video games long live the box it's like it's it's like that you've probably never seen 2001 a space odyssey but it's like the monkeys worship this giant black obelisk. yeah the obelisk yeah, soon that will be totally. like the xbox of the 2030s <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll just we'll fly to a distant planet, and there will just be an Xbox obelisk <laughs> like somehow connected. Ten thousand controller ports, and like every IP that's not Nintendo. Well, Nintendo oh, will man. worship at the foot of the obelisk. That, that's yeah, exactly. They'll know their place. <laughs> it's it's like a herald. Long live the Xbox, our friend, our licensor. Long live. Oh, goodness. Goodness gracious. Oh, boy. On that dystopian note. Right. I don't know what type of stagnation that would inject into the video game industry. But, I mean, there's always going to be the indie developers that are going to come along and do things that are revolutionary. There's always going to be the the Chris Roberts of CIG crowdfunding for hundreds of millions of dollars and not finishing their game. There's always going to be people that are out there that won't be part of that shit, I guess. And maybe Sony can capitalize on some of that and some of those people. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I could see, for example, um, you know, if, if Xbox does stamp out Sony, I think that leaves room for like an independent console, another one to be made maybe heavily supported by the indie community. You might have someone like Barone that made Stardew Valley 15 years from now, where he's, I mean, he's like an uber indie developer now, but he makes a few more good IPs 
he supports the startup. You could have something like that that lives in the shadow of the box, but I mean, <laughs> the shadow of the box. I just the shadow of the box. Oh, by, goodness. By <laughs> I, I mean, like, look, I, Sony, Sony has a chance to turn it around here in the next five or 10 years and, and kind of get back neck to neck or differentiate themselves from Microsoft. But where we sit here, 2022, February, I don't, I don't think it looks good. I think it's part of the whole point I made this segment. I guess, but I, I mean, obviously this Bungie acquisition is a lateral movement for them. But if Microsoft is everything, then a lateral movement still puts you into position that you're competing with Microsoft. No, I, I see that. I see that. I think, I think if Sony is serious about both being scared and about being relevant, I think over the next two years, you and I are going to actually see a number of similar purchases of this, like Sony, you know, mopping up a billion dollar company here, a $500 million company yeah. there, uh, because they'll have to, or, or they're just going to be squeezed out of the market space. True. Yeah, you know, I can see that. I mean, honestly, like if they, if they are able to do that and, and again, foster relationships with what they say they want to have with Bungie, just like, Hey, Bungie, we like what you're doing. We want you to keep doing your thing with maybe, you know, a, a little bit of uh, our, our experience and our weight behind you to help you oversee and, and give you direction in your own projects that maybe you're lacking as a smaller company. I think that's going to be incredibly attractive to a lot of developers. Yeah, I agree. Like, look, I, I mean, we, we've been saying some dystopian shit the last 15 minutes here, but like, I think... I think Sony easily has a chance if they have some vision and foresight to uh, to figure things out. I, I guess my whole point of the segment is what Microsoft did with their huge acquisition is a blow. And I was asking the question, is Sony panicking or not? Or what's going on? I mean, I think we've debated as best as we can because there is no solid answer out there. Well, yeah. I mean, unless more details come out, how nobody will ever know, right? No, like Christ know. knows what either side is, uh, what information either side has on you know each other's dealings, right? Like, was Sony were were they aware? Were was Sony aware of the Activision acquisition as it was being you know brokered, and vice versa, right? Like, who knows? No, it's a good point. Who knows? I I can't answer that. I don't think anyone can. Well. I can tell you what we can give you an answer to is how great this upcoming board game is in the crazy about cardboard segment. <laughs> Perfect seg segue, buddy. Here we go. We are finally to the crazy about the cardboards. CAC. We're talking about Wingspan. Yes, that's right. The critically acclaimed game about birds designed by Elizabeth Hargrave, put up by Stonemeyer Games. This this thing was like when I first dropped this thing was so 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 fucking hot. Um people love this game, people love the theme, people love love the birds. They love the burbs, man. It's all about the birds, baby. I yeah, I love this game. I mean, you can I I want you to start off the segment cuz I'm curious what you think about this game cuz I wonder if you played it too much with Emma. You said her parents play the fuck out of it. I'm sure she does too. Like have you been played out of Wingspan, or do you, do you like the game? Um, I mean, actually, I've only played the I've only played Wingspan once with Emma and her family. <gasps> um, and I, I mean, yeah, the game's fine. <laughs> I 
I'm pretty neutral in this game, honestly. Like, I could take it or leave it, quite frankly. Really? Well, maybe we need to play it again or something. I mean, uh, my experience was I, I played it actually with uh, Super Geek, Randy, uh, one-time uh, guest host on the show here. Uh, played it with him and his wife. And I really enjoyed it. Once I actually figured out what was going on, I think the learning curve is slightly higher for a quote-unquote family-friendly game. But once I figured out what was going on, I I really liked it. Um, I felt like you had multiple strategies you could go for. And I'm not just talking like two or three. I'm talking like six defined strategies. So, listener, just so I can give you an overview about the game... The game involves you basically buying birds with resources. Uh, you have three, the birds are cards. You have uh, basically three parts on your play mat where you can put the birds from left to right. Uh, at top, there's the... Uh, yeah, you have the woodlands, you have the meadow, and then there's like the marsh or whatever. Yeah, meadow, and then there's the marsh. Habitats, the they're bird habitats. Bird, bird habitats. And so as you build up, what happens is your birds activate from right to left. So, so for example, let's take the top tier. The top tier is food. You know, the more birds you have at the top tier, um, woodlands, when you activate, you not only get more food, the more birds you have up there from the bird feeder, it's called, which is you roll every once in a while and different kinds of food come up on die. But the birds can activate and do things. It might give you another bonus card you have a pick between. They might give you stuff from the bird feeder, let you draw a card. The birds also have points on them. Most of them, a few are zero point birds. But uh, those points help you get victory points in the end. In the meadow, you can lay eggs. Eggs are used both to pay for birds because as you put more birds in a specific biosphere, you need to pay more and more eggs for them. But the eggs also count as victory points at the end. So there's a strategy to load up on eggs. There are strategies to load up on on cards as well. Um, certain birds will do what's called a tuck, and it's usually a predatory bird. So a predatory bird, when activated, say you're going right to left, um, if a predatory bird activates, you reveal a card if it's wingspan. Here, here the wingspan actually comes into play. If the wingspan is less than a certain amount, the bird tucks it, so you put the card underneath, which counts as a victory point at the end. It's essentially the bird eating a smaller bird. Is what it represents but yeah you can win by victory card bonuses you can win by eggs you can win by uh bird amount of points on birds um every round there's a randomized bonus you try to go for so it might be certain birds for example they've got different icons beside them one weird icon is a coffee mug i don't know what that actually means but it sticks out so say for example you might get a certain amount of points for having an egg for each egg on a coffee icon bird. And if you win the most of that, you get like the most points at the end of the round. So there's a lot of ways to get points and a lot of ways to kind of, to build an engine, whether it's a card drawing engine, an egg laying engine. What, what I like about the game is flexibility. There's just so many ways to, to try to win. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of variance for sure, but just because the, stack of bird cards is just so big there's so many different birds right and and they i mean there, there's kind of a there's kind of a general thing that you know different kind of groupings of birds will do whether or not they'll they'll 
earn you more food or like you say like the predatory birds will will kind of be uh the tuck um uh strategy so you know different groupings of birds kind of lend towards specific strategies but yeah there's just so many so many different kinds um and yeah laying the eggs on like the score points for different the different nests is usually what those symbols are uh for those types of birds and uh i do it does it does really do engine building well and yes i i do like engine builders and i'm I know that's why you and you enjoy this game and should have been like, hey, you know what? This is a game Moby would probably like, you know, really. It was kind of right in front of me there. But engine building definitely is is um is a big thing for me. And uh yeah, it's cool. I I, I agree with you. I like the I like the variants. And, and you know, everyone likes the components too, the little the eggs. Or like little uh, Cadbury mini eggs. <laughs> oh yeah, I wanted to eat them. I basically showed Super Geek. I'm like, can I eat this? Like, is there chocolate inside? Because they look like they, they came out of the same mold. And he had the deluxe edition that had like all the... Ooh. I guess he got it from Gen Con when it came out. Yeah, he said. So he got all the nice little pieces of food that you would take and, and all the nice little bird bird things. I was the Blue Jay for all my little turn markers. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, my first game ever, I came in second. Uh, Super Geek won, of course. But uh, I started off with a bonus card for birds with big wingspans. So I eventually built an engine mostly in my wetland where every bird was either eating and tucking smaller birds or um, something to do with it drawing cards. Oh, well, it just drew so many cards that I got a bunch of big birds. And actually, big birds in that game counterintuitively, a lot of them are pretty cheap. They don't have many victory points on them. Might have like a zero, one, or two, but I found like a lot of the vultures and stuff like that uh, have low costs and uh, are pretty easy to get out there. So yeah, I hit big on my bonuses. Your bonuses ramp, so like the more birds you have working towards your bonus cards, uh, the more points you get. So yeah, that was my first strategy, and um, I don't know, it's really fun, and I think one of the things I really like too is uh, there's a version on Steam on PC that's really good. Like, the art is great, uh, it's not buggy, it's a good way to learn, and um, also when you get a bird in the Steam version, it gives you trivia on the bird, which I really appreciate, random facts. There's some really interesting random facts for these birds. That's cool. Yeah. I should pick it up. I actually have a 30% coupon, a 30% off coupon for... <laughs> for the digital wingspan <laughs> yeah dude it's not that expensive i i absolutely would get it i'll play with you yeah i play like this this i mean i i, I came in kind of tepid on it but like this is a game where i this is a game where i would suggest pulling it out and i wouldn't balk at somebody else suggesting it right um there's lots of games where it's like mm, i would not have a problem playing this would would probably never suggest it but this is like another kind of those games like you like we kind of alluded to at the beginning of the episode. Like this is like as cooperative as a competitive game kind of gets, right? Exactly. Like you're you're not really you're not in you're not directly competing with each other really. I, I, I although that's not entirely true because yes, you like you say you have those 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 shared goals per round and there's actually two kind of sides to that scoring um board. Um one of which is more competitive than the other where it's like you know the there's like a, a first second third fourth fifth kind of scoring and the points start high for first and go down to zero for if you come in last to meet that requirement kind of stuff so 
there there is again that's more variance and variability in the way you play the game uh as well like you like you mentioned um and, and there are also a lot of birds that actually benefit your neighbors uh you know activating a particular bird mm-hmm. may give a word like a worm to everybody at the table or to yeah. like the person you left or right or whatever it is right so there's there's definitely um it's like a it's like a soft competitiveness almost right this, honestly this Very is like your so. participation river this is your participation ribbon game. You know, like, it, really? it, it is, it is. And I, I don't I, like, I want to be careful here and not being sexist, but like, this is a great game to get women into like girlfriends, wives. Like for example, uh, my sister is big into it. I didn't know that, but she loves it. She's probably going to buy the steam version. My brother bought the steam version for my sister-in-law yesterday. I'm actually training her how to play it on wednesday which is uh two days from now from this recording and um i i mean emma loves it i think marty's earthly wife would love it and uh you're not laughing at that earthly wife i don't know i thought that was funny <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, i'm on stage all week um, but anyways, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's a very accessible game as far as um, some more complex games go. I do think I agree that the the theme really does lend to it being more accessible to a wider wider populace. Uh, I mean, it, it is so like it's such a non threatening thing. Like you literally just have uh, pictures of of birds uh, and. Yeah, you get you get the you know they they have the the size of them and the types of regions that they like to live in, all of which has been um, uh, accurately uh, researched to put into the game as it was being developed. And yeah, there's just something like kind of quaint about it, you know. Uh, like this is the, again, this is like kind of one of those those themes where like you didn't really know you needed, <laughs> but now that it's here, you're like, wow, this really fills in this kind of hole in in potentially like a collection or somebody's somebody's collection or or, or variety of games that they offer to you know a particular play group yeah and i think you brought up a good point like this is the kind of game you're, you're never really ashamed to bring out because even for hardcore board gamers there's enough strategies you can play there's enough complexity to it that they're not going to be bored but it's going to keep everybody's attention at the table that kind of classic, easy to learn, hard to master, cliche. Yeah. And you know, one of the the notes I wanted to bring up here in regards to it helping educate on birds, uh, apparently the um, art, the the painting of the birds on the cards is so accurate that a book has been released on on Amazon uh, by ornithologists that uses wingspan art in a real book about birding which is really cool i actually suggest i suggested that book to super geek's wife today because her dad loves the game and he's a birder i think that's what they call him like birder like he hunts down rare birds around town and stuff and so i'm like your dad loves the the board game and he loves birds get him this book and she's like oh yeah it looks great um I I enjoy being like educated on birds. I mean, they're flying around me all the time. It's good. It's kind of cool to know the trivia about them. That's why I love the whole trivia <laughs> thing. Yeah, and honestly, there's like a, a a lot of like magnificent and beautiful birds, right? Like they're so. It's just it, they're so diverse. Uh, 
mm-hmm. from species to species of bird. And um, yeah, I think I think there is that 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 something about them that also kind of draws you into this game too, right? Like you're like, oh, the, uh, I'm. Like you say, I see birds. I wonder what's <laughs> up with it. What's up with the birds? <laughs> and then um, I think it's layered on uh, on on a number of mechanisms that are are well well crafted and, and they definitely complement each other. And like you say, this isn't like this isn't entirely a, a gateway game because there is some complexity to it, and most of that does come into the engine building itself. I think right. as a concept engine building can be something that is difficult to wrap your head around sometimes because it's a lot of interconnected moving parts right or 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 again ideally that's what you strive to to build a lot and and making the 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 sum greater than its parts right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, i i mean i think that's a good good description for it you know, one of the things I wanted to discuss, are there any flaws with it? I think because there's so many ways to gain victory points and win, I think unless you're a math whiz and you have time to really uh, take a look around the table, uh, there's really no good sense of where you stand in regards to points until things are scored at the end of the game. And like Super Geek, like he's, he's a good guy with math. He whipped out like a notebook he especially keeps for this game and like a calculator and is adding up the victory points. And that's why the Steam version on the computer is nice. It does that all for you at the end. But um, it, because there's so many diverse ways to gain points and everyone, you know, secret bonus cards and stuff like that, you can't really know how well you're doing until the final scoring's done. Yeah, I, yeah, that's totally true. I mean, you can kind of look at each other's tableau and see how many of the habitats they've filled with, with birds, right? Because again, that's that's your engine i think you can fit uh, what is it four birds in each three of the habitats i believe yeah and then the if you fill a row that fifth action is like the best the action can be right and then you have four birds that you activate from right to left getting the best bang for your buck and as the rounds progress for those round victory scoring you're taking one of your your action cubes and putting it and scoring it literally putting it onto that physical scorecard and losing an action as the as the rounds go so into the game you, the the rounds co- theoretically speed up because you're taking less of them but if you're building your engine properly your actions are more involved and you're get and they're worth more they're more valuable to you so you can do more with less actions which is a really cool like like way to it's almost like it's a cyclical thing that keeps the game like well-rounded um from first round to last round because i find that a lot of it's almost like kind of like in splendor there gets to a point where you're just your engine is 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 motoring so much that the end game is inevitable but for here the the end point literally is when everyone has taken all their actions that's the end of the game rather than the end of the game being some 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 like victory point goal uh i think that that does a really good job of of keeping the keeping the play interesting the whole way and also lends more to you being able to like you say yes you can't really math out where everyone else is because there's so much hidden information especially when you're tucking cards like who knows how many cards are tucked under that bird of prey right or or 
uh, or, or how many um, food might be stacked up on, on a given card or on a dude across across the table from you, on the person across the table from you. But you can you can you can calculate your own stuff knowing how many actions you have and how good your own actions are because also you don't have any real idea of how well someone else's action row is functioning comparatively too right because you're just you're active i mean yes you're activating on your turn and kind of running through it but really like you have to you kind of almost have to take everyone out of their word that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing you know what yeah, i mean because there's a lot that starts to happen those final couple rounds yes like aaron's like yeah you know i get food here two food here three cards there steal this food and it's like whoa okay you know like you're saying you know i i hope you know what your your engine is doing correctly or else yeah 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 it's you know cheating that you're not trying to cheat with but um this is why like like listener if if this appeals to you i do recommend the steam version um i do think it's fairly expensive still so you might want to wait until it's um it's on sale like uh, yeah it's right now it's uh twenty three dollars canadian funds but like leland for you with a 30 percent off certificate i would say like absolutely go for it i'll, I'll make it worth your yeah. while but uh yeah you, you it's probably in the next six 12 months going to come down to kind of the 10 15 dollar range um but if what we said is is quite intriguing i would go for now and i know we said to rate the game i think with you only playing it once and not playing the steam version i don't think that's necessarily fair well i've i've only played it with emma once i played this this more times than just just a single time Uh, i do my my flaw though uh is there's quite a bit of randomness to it just because that bird deck is so big and when you're when a lot of the scoring are based on like uh you know have the most birds in a given biome perhaps maybe that's one of like the first round scoring it really it depends on what birds come out on that tray. So there is an open tray of three birds and then the blind deck. And as you take your turn, you're taking the birds and they don't quite refill. Uh, I forget when exactly they refill, but there's there's a time where they remain empty and your choices can be very limited. So I don't like how random that is sometimes. And you can you can really get screwed by that. And by not getting, you know, birds with the type of nest that you want or birds that uh you can actually even pay for using your food because each bird has a food cost which is where the food comes in you know from the bird feeder uh so that's that's my biggest flaw with it's just there's you can really be subjected uh to like almost game ruining randomness from that deck whereas somebody else might be fine because like you say you get a hidden goal too like maybe you just can't draw into anything that helps your hidden goal and if the rest of the table is hitting that goal it's going to be really hard for you to compete at the end but again, I feel like this game being the, almost that participation ribbon, it's almost like this game itself is kind of the experience, I guess, especially if you're into birds or right. Just being able to, to, to interact with the different types of birds that you get to see. And like, they're always, they're always going to be different, right? You're probably, yeah. you, you could play this game like a dozen times and probably see a new bird every time you play it. Yeah. Uh, as long as you're shuffling properly. I think that's part of it. So you just you just kind of have to lean into the randomness, and I don't think this game is meant to be something that you can overly be competitive with. Although it certainly has those capabilities, like Emma's parents, the two of them, they just play two player. Her mom and dad, and they are so good at this game. They're always scoring higher than a hundred points, wow. and they have this 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 competition with each other where they just 
try to out- outdo each other. They play it so much. Yeah, that's crazy. As someone who's like, I think my, my top points is like 68, 69. So I have a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, they're getting they're getting up there. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, if you want to review, you can. We have our, our ranking system. I, I can slot this into a rank for sure. Oh, man. I would have to have reviewed what all the other board games are. I forget. It's been so long. Well, it's a good thing I have it right in front of me, sir. It's time for so ranking for... about ranks. <sighs> Huzzah! So for you, you have ranked from top to bottom. Uh, Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. Splendor. Transatlantic. Kemet. Downforce. This War of Mine. Okay. Yeah, I've got a tough Do you here. like this more than Splendor? Is my question. I do not. So, now... Not by, like, a lot. Like, not like a landslide, even though I was decisive in saying that. I think I would put it above transatlantic, though I'm still deciding on that. It definitely is not any lower than one below transatlantic. But I love shippity ships. And blue (laughs) ribbon. Even though usually the blue ribbon. I would say due to the slightly better simplicity... And the fact that I love boats, I would put Transatlantic above it, but slot this in for me just below Transatlantic. Okay, so that comes in fourth for you. So my list is from top to bottom, Transatlantic, Downforce, TI4, Splendor, Kemet, and This War of Mine. I'm gonna, I think I would put Wingspan uh, just under Splendor. Okay. So it's pretty it's pretty low down there, and I think I, I choose Splendor over it. Um, just because, uh, you know, uh, kind of basically the people that I played it with, like the times that I've, the good times I've had playing it with you, and then especially with MM, and I play it quite a bit. That's kind of what pushes Splendor above Wingspan for me. But I do think that Wingspan is is a is a, it's a more complex game than Splendor, and I think that would potentially appeal to more people that want more out of an engine builder. Right. No, I I agree, and I'm like, look, I I love. You know, you know me. I'll play thirty games of Splendor a day. I won't play thirty games of Wingspan <laughs> per day. But right, uh, right, right. listener, I think we both would say give it a shot, though. Oh yeah, I've, it's definitely worth playing. Absolutely worth playing. Yeah, buddy, that's all I got. So if you want to hit into end of show stuff, that'd be great. Okay, end of show stuff. Our website ttpopcast.com, where you can find our list of board game rankings. Uh, the TT Popcast on Facebook, TT Popcast on Instagram. I've been Leland Steele. And I've been Moby. Take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.